Welcome to episode 71 of Where Others Won't. If you're just finding the show, I hope you'll check out previous episodes with the likes of NBA legend Joe Dumas, Ryerson University and Team Canada coach Carly Clark, and new Atlanta Hawks director of sports medicine, Marty Lozon. My guest on this episode is Joanne McCalley, better known as Coach P, who's the former head coach of Duke women's basketball. Her list of accomplishments is as long as your arm, so I won't read them out, but she's compiled a 646 and 255 record over a career spanning more than 30 years, and she was named AP Coach of the Year in 2005. Joanne has recently released her second book, Secret Warrior, which chronicles her career following being diagnosed with bipolar at age 30. Where Others Won't, episode 71, is with Joanne McCalley. Joanne McCalley, Coach P, how are you? I'm doing great, Cody, and thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely delighted to have you on the show. Really looking forward to talking coaching with you, talking teams, talking basketball, which has been at the center of your life for a long time. But let's start with the work you've been doing most recently. We're just going to go straight to it. At age 30, you were diagnosed with bipolar. So as the kind of preface for all of this conversation, tell us what is bipolar and then how has it impacted your, your life, your coaching? Yes, bipolar is a mood disorder. There's bipolar one and bipolar two. And I've had the good fortune of having both sides of bipolar, which is a manic episode, my first episode, and also a depressive episode and some adjustments along the way. So it's been uh, challenging. It's been something I've embraced, but not without great struggle. And it's been wonderful to see the people reach out and the mental health advocacy and directly talking to younger uh, players and people about bipolar and also the whole spectrum of de anxiety, depression, all those post-pandemic uh, things that are going on. It, people, about 50% of families are affected in some way about mental health. And mental health impairment, I should say. I like to really make the distinction. Mental health is a positive term. You know, great mental health and working on your brain and brain balance. Um, but mental health impairment, obviously, is a tough issue. You mentioned two things there, manic and then depression. Explain those to me. So start with manic. What does, uh, what does it actually mean? Yeah, it, it's a hyperactivity uh, electrical circuitry problem in your brain uh, where you simply go too fast, talk too fast, and you also have a grandiose view of things. So you get up in sort of the clouds a little bit about life in general. Uh, it can be a very happy, uh, very productive time. Uh, people have talked about some of the famous Van Gogh and others wanting to go into mania. Uh, so that they could really be creative and do things like that. Uh, but it's dangerous and your brain can't operate that way. Uh, so that would be mania. And then of course, the depressive side, people understand more 
that's the low side of depression. Mm -hmm. You can't really, your brain doesn't work as quickly. At times, can't even read the paper. Uh, you get to a space where you're very uncomfortable. And the movie Homeland, by the way, did a great job with Claire Danes as she worked through her job. I believe it was a CIA and she was bipolar. Mm -hmm. And it showed how she used it on a manic side and then some of the costs associated with it. Um, so that was a great um, show that really showed a lot about the disease. Mm -hmm. And so you, you've just released Secret Warrior. You've become a, a bit of a spokesperson for bipolar and, and like you talk about the mental health issue in general. And I believe you've been on the cover of a, a magazine. <laughs> Uh, bipolar recently, magazine, yes. Bipolar magazine, amazing. Uh, go and check that out. But you've also released Secret Warrior, which is a book. Uh, it's fair to say this is your real story. Yes. And I believe people read books when they need to, but I also believe that authors like you and I write books when we need to. Mm -hmm. So why was this the right time for you to write this book? Well, yes, it was unfinished business. I wrote Choice Not Chance, my first book, and that told a story of coaching going from Maine to Michigan State to Duke, uh, but it left out a lot. And um, I knew I had to tell the full story. I've been a coach for 30 years, 28 as a head coach, and things were just winding down in my career. It felt time to step away. I, I began Secret Warrior prior to the pandemic. Uh, it was started back in the springtime. Of course, the pandemic hit and that provided more time to really dive into it. And then stepping away from Duke was a good time uh, to pass the torch to a new coach and then really go full force into mental health advocacy. And I do feel strongly that I needed to be out of coaching to write the book because I would have brought too much attention to me versus my team if I was still actively coaching. It might be different later, but in terms of releasing it, catching people by surprise with it, and I don't know of any other coaches, D1 especially, that have come out with a mood disorder. Although sports is bipolar in nature, and I know you understand that as a coach. I mean, you win, you lose, it's up, down, you don't get sleep. Um, it really has elements of bipolar to it, so, so to speak. Right, definitely. So how did you deal with this then as you went through and you one learned about bipolar two learned about yourself and then three learned about coaching and trying to bring all those things together as you're progressively going from Maine to Michigan State to Duke like all of these things on the same trajectory how did you I don't want to say manage but like how did you kind of learn and try to apply all of those things as you're on this upward trajectory well, I was fortunate to have great support, you know, family support, my husband, a great team, some wonderful doctors and therapists. I was in denial about the mania. I was not going to believe that for a second. Uh, so I, I learned some very difficult lessons, which is in the book, uh, taking medicine and then knowing more than the doctors and not taking medicine and having a second episode. Uh, the book is really about loyalty. It's about the main women and how they st stood by me and how we continued to win championships. Um, during my eight years there, there were two episodes during eight years, two years apart. 
And the continued success, I think, is a critical part of it because life wasn't perfect for two seasons especially, yet the championships continued. And that's a reflection of the focus and dedication of the women. And so my mental health journey got very secure at Maine, me taking medicine, me learning the hard lessons. Uh, my last year, or my second to last year in Maine, we actually played Stanford in the SLA tournament. We won, we made history. Uh, there were some really neat things that happened at Maine. Being recruited by Michigan State was one of the greatest things that's, that's ever happened to me. And then going to a national championship in five years, at that point, I was very balanced. And the routine of coaching helps with that balance. You know, the day-to-day -day balance. And I got in quite a rhythm, had no incidences, didn't even have a therapist in East Lansing, just worked with my doctor in Maine. Then I go on to Duke, again, to be recruited by Duke, one of the greatest things I've gone through with Coach K and all of that. You know, Tom was great at Michigan State. Mike's been great. So that was a big deal. And at Duke, I continued as well with that balanced approach until I had a kidney issue. But even after the, with a kidney issue, we went to the Sweet 16 and we did some neat things. I, I did have a therapist that I got uh, because it, um, of the difficulty of the ACC and also the difficulty of taking over at Duke. Ironically, she's helped a little bit with a bipolar, but she was more just a therapist overall. And so that's kind of how it went. And to take it one step further, I think to follow your question, I'm out of coaching now. And this has been the hardest time for me ever relative to not so much balance, but, but some medicine issues, yes. And some sorting through my life as I don't, you know, not coaching. And I know, you know what that's about. Probably nothing can prepare you for that. It's, it's very much like athletes when they come out and all of that structure and all of that discipline goes away and, and you see these same things rear their heads that they kind of lose their way a little bit coaches are exactly the same yes yes i want to press on something that you talked about there early on around loyalty and particularly that main team because this was the 90s right we're not talking about recent history right. so this is coaching in the 90s kind of at the peak if you will of well, if we want to use the word manic, like the peak of manic coaching in terms of do everything, be omni-available, omnipresent, oversight over everything, work 23 hours a day, sleep on the futon, and don't, and don't tell anyone anything about your personal life, emotions. Right. right. And so this, this is quite fascinating in that during that time, Obviously, this news comes out about you and the response from the team is essentially nothing but love and support. Is that fair to say? Yeah, as you say, this was 25 years ago when nobody no. uttered a word about mental health impairment or anything about mental health. And even with this group, uh, I talked to them when I was out for two weeks with the mania and I came back. They were excited to have me back. They kept parents at bay because there were questions, of course. They told their parents basically to stay out of it. And they told the administration to stay out of it. The administration, of course, was wondering about their coach. This occurred in October. I was very fortunate 
because it was before the real season. I mean, so it was the last two weeks or so in October as my assistants took over the team as I recovered and then came back, I'm going to say probably November 1st. We won't, went on and won a championship that year. And so that they are truly an amazing group and they wanted to know more than exhaustion. What, I, what they were told was I was, had exhaustion and I had just given birth a year earlier to my first child. Now, the truth of the matter is I did have exhaustion. That was true, but we didn't go any further. They didn't ask. I didn't say, you know, it was so taboo. That was it. And I had one of my players who is now a very successful head coach at Maine, Amy Vashon, tell me when I read Choice Not Chance, I felt like you didn't tell the whole story. And I said, Amy, I didn't tell the whole story because I was currently coaching. And so my main players in particular, this book has meant a lot to them uh, to get the full story. And I hope for our Michigan State and Duke players as well, it, although they weren't touched by it in that way. Um, it was different for them. I was just a demanding, you know, I was a very authentic, demanding coach, um, fair coach, but they, but I didn't have issues where they had to worry about the things that the main players had to worry about. This strikes me as one of the core problems that we're having, I guess, as a community in coaching right now, as this shift to kind of a, a more vulnerable style, a more open style being partners in performance as opposed to kind of adversaries in performance mm -hmm. and coaches not wanting to share their their own stories and in this this is obviously an extreme case of that but it doesn't need to be you know your deepest darkest secrets it's just yeah. sharing who you are do you see that in the, the coaches that you mentor and, and work with at the moment just there's a little we're not quite there yet uh, we're not quite there, and it's difficult to know if we can be there. I think a coach can be humble, authentic, but when a coach gets overly vulnerable, I think that creates problems uh, in terms of leadership and in terms of philosophy and following sort of the code and the philosophy, the philosophy of the program. So I think there's a very fine line in coaching. And now with the name image likeness situation, where coaches are now becoming agents on top of everything else, you know, the, the familiarity is important. The care is important. The one-on-one -on -one is important. Understanding your team is important, but there is a decision maker and everyone else makes suggestions, especially assistant coaches. And I think that you can undermine leadership to a point of it just, everybody's doing their own thing. And I think, I think we're at the precipice, if I said that word right, we're, 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 right, we're right there and, and with all of this. And I think the opportunity and benefits of the name image likeness thing is really important, you know, really important. But boy, did we throw another thing in for coaches yeah. and for players to balance with that leadership and vulnerability. You've just taken it a step further to that whole kind of, again, society is kind of moving towards this in, in 
exclusive decision-making style, but there is also this reality in what we do that there is a decision-maker and ultimately that end decision, regardless of how informed it is by others, is still sits in our Mm -hmm. scope. Yes. And there's one person that needs to be comfortable with the decision that's made at the end of the day because their livelihood rests solely with that decision and so again it's this there's this teeter-totter at the moment of the way exactly. society is kind of dealing with it and the way that teams actually operate and, and they well, are quite well, coaching coaching is a craft right Cody I mean coaching right. is a craft it's like you know it's not like you know people say well it's not like being a doctor or whatever but it, it's a craft and you learn it through years of experience and so the idea that everybody can coach I mean there are a lot of great players that would not be good coaches you know, relative to breaking it down fundamentally. And so what it does is it sort of obliterates the craft because it makes it everyone can have equal decision-making. And last time I checked, there's a way to learn how to coach through mentors, you know, through experience. I came up the mid-major route at Maine, very valuable experience for me. Um, But I also want to flip it. Like you said, the teeter-totter on the other side I want the student athletes to have opportunity, but where does that end? And where does the decisions, you know, where does that PR person or that agent come in to infiltrating the craft of coaching? And I I don't know that separation and you don't, we, I mean, none of us know, right? The unintended consequences are, are still out there. We don't know. One of my most recent blogs is called the guessing game. And it was essentially about this is we are in a big guessing game, tactically guessing game, right? Put this player in this position to make this shot. You're still guessing that that occurs. And then that kind of filters through almost everything that we do. We're we're educated guesses at a certain point. Yes. Yes. Now this might be a, uh, a bit of a philosophical question because I don't know if you intend on going back into coaching, but if you were right now, how would you set yourself up for success if you were given the opportunity to kind of go in with a blank slate of everything? Mm-hmm. In, let's say like a, 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 an expansion franchise or something like that, where you could build everything, including your own schedule and how to optimize yourself. What do you think you would put in place that maybe you you haven't had in the past or you think would just make you the best possible coach? I think that I would definitely do more of the things I did walking the dog with players, you know, one-on-one. Okay. So more one-on-one. I, of course you do office one-on-one, you do film one-on-one, but maybe more one-on-one walking the dog and then something else like the, to really maximize the development you know, I call it, you know, cognitive behavioral restructuring, you know, through doing things, getting everybody on the same page. Uh, I think that's critical piece. So I, I did some of that, but probably should have done more. And I think also, I just think you benefit from maturity. The fact that I've told my story puts me in a whole different space of understanding. Uh, not that I would overanalyze people's mental health because that would not be my view but people would understand me a little bit more and, and sort of that I would hope that vulnerability could work in favor 
of me understanding the dynamics of individuals' motivation and their own physical and mental health. X and O's wise, you'd have to catch up, right? right? I mean, you know, when you're, defensively, I feel, I feel like man-to-man, my matchups, my half-court presses, full-court presses, like defensively, I think I would be on point um, in terms of what, what we do there. Offensively, that's, that's the evolution of that. Uh, the, the, the game, playing the game faster, 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 um, spreading the floor. Uh, some of it I love and some of it I don't like because it, sometimes there are arbitrary shots involved where I want certain players to get the ball like over and over again. And the block is still a great place to get the ball. You know, paint points still matter. Um, but I, I definitely think there's always an offensive, you know, genre that de- that is really developing. So I would have to get some more expertise there. I know what you mean. And it does become a little bit of a, even that example that you use there in terms of relearning the offense. Like you kind of get dragged into, I call it the game, right? The game takes you in certain directions, whether you want to go there or not. Yes. And, yes. and again, that's another guessing game and another balancing act of, I think I can innovate here or I actually don't want to play that way. Yeah. What's real here is could Pat Summit, the great late Pat Summit have coached at this, this time. I mean, I think you have to, you're my British Italian motivational self would probably have to be turned down and whether I could coach that way or not. You see, I mean, I mean, you really have to tone it down, uh, really you have to be very, it seems more gentle, you know, really. I mean, I tried to alternate how I was with different players and I was grateful. There were some players that would say to me, coach, I want you to coach me hard. You know, those great players that said, I want you to get after me. But when you did that with the great players, a player over here, more sensitive would be affected by that, Mm -hmm. you know, and not even recognize that player over here, the great player had asked for it. Yeah, wanted me to be right in their face. And so I think that I'm sad to, I'm sad to think that we'd have to go soft. Is soft, what, you know, what works? And I see some great coaches, you know, that won national championships, Nick Saban for one. I, there's nothing about him that's turned soft. He understands his players. He makes the effort. He does that. But I, I would hope that could be the case is that you could be your full energetic personality and and coach you know not have to step away from coaching hard there's this great clip that was sent to me and it was a coach in uh, hurling in ireland i don't know if you've seen hurling but uh it's it just goes for 15 seconds or something like that and it shows uh, i think they're at an intermission and within those 15 seconds, the coach approaches four different players and he does four different things, four different actions with each yeah. of those players. So he starts with his arm around one, he just has a quiet word to, to that player and moves on. And then in the end, he goes, the last player, he actually punches him in the chest. He like jabs him <laughs> in the chest. Not obviously not a, a full on punch, but he's kind of, giving giving that guy what he he needs just to give him that extra little bit and it's funny people started tagging me in it 
and saying like I thought you'd love this you know what do you think here but it's that exactly what you're describing there knowing each individual and what they might need in in the next little part of the game and what they need to just kind of get them into their performance mindset right I mean take free throw shooting for example you can have players that actually can't face facts like you tell a player you're shooting 50% from the free throw line. Oh, coach is getting on to me. I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, you you know, and also, you know, do do the repetition, do the work, you know, receive the coaching, you know, I, I think that reality, you know, is an important thing to be able to cope with. Conflict is needed. Suffering is part of the deal to push yourself to be that something extra that gets beyond talent and your sort of normal self. I mean, what's the something extra? It's the mental fortitude, right? It's the ability to go to another place. And I think it takes a collaborative effort to get a person to get to their future image. And I know for me, it worked out great thinking about future image with most of my players, but there were a few that couldn't deal with their future image. Meaning don't, you know, don't, don't coach me or don't, you know, don't be too hard on me. And, and I think Gino says it great. I mean, he's a great coach. He's won a lot of national titles and he just says, I don't want to coach a player. I don't want to coach. I don't want a player who can't be coached hard and aggressively. And I forget the words he, he, he says it his own way, uh, but he makes a clear point about standards, you know, and keeping standards and being able to, um, do it from a passionate, loving place, you know, not from a real personal place, but from that good, that good energy you need to offer teams. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is part of it too, I think, in that particularly with your age group in college, you know, again, coaching philosophies kind of move towards, you know, give, empower teams and players and and that's great but often what needs to happen is the coach actually kind of needs to drag them through that at a mm-hmm. yes you know yeah. to to get to that end point that that is some sort of end goal to you know give standards to players so that they can drive them in training and out of training and etc cetera, etc cetera. but they have to learn how to get there first and that's the coach's role and if you haven't won championships i mean i think it's if the coach has won championships and the players have not well, then something better lean. You mean, you know, like, again, getting back to national championships, let's talk about Tara Vanderveer, okay? One of the greatest coaches of all time forever. And she's great. She just says it like it is. I mean, she just has this way about her that brings that honesty. And they have great talent and all these things. But, she, you know, she's making those decisions in a way that she is clearly in charge, and she's clearly figured out a way, you know, she's pushing the, the team a certain way. And uh, you could just see how that happened in the final four in the national championship. Uh, those players, it's very fun to watch that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a lot of people in, in your sphere in basketball and college and, and a lot of legends that I'm sure you've got mentorship from. What about outside of basketball? Who has impacted your leadership philosophy, your coaching philosophy? Well, it's interesting you say that a lot of a lot of basketball um, outside of basketball. Gosh, I mean, everyone I'm thinking of right now in my head 
is connected to basketball. I, I think the world that I lived in, you know, when you look at psychiatry and you look at therapy and some of the things that I went through in a personal level, I think that was phenomenally helpful in coaching, being intuitive and being able to make decisions. You know, it's funny that we're having people go to space now, right? They're, the billionaires are sending people to space. I always, I want to be a billionaire so that, and, and I, that's not likely to happen, um, but so that everyone can have a therapist. <laughs> my, my attitude is you must have a neutral party, a non-family non member, somebody that you can trust, and you must be able to talk openly to get the best out of you. And I know that coaches can't be therapists. We can be good listeners. And I've helped with different problems with my players, but at the same time, you, you've got to have a fine line. But I think therapy and helping you get past and restructuring your negative thoughts is really, really important. So, so I've had some, doc, I would say doctor mentors. Let's keep going on that because now as we move towards this, you know, training the brain and, and understanding more about the brain, what it's capable of, what it does, uh, what its actual functions are, particularly in sport, there's obviously a move towards sports psychology and, and further than that, cultural elements that actually drive mental performance. Do you think that access for yourself to whether it was direct therapy, whether it was just an understanding of psychology helped you with setting up culture and setting up behaviors that were going to drive performance within your teams? Oh, unequivocally, yes. And I was a good, you know, good coach at Maine. I, I, I was 26 years old when I took over that program. And, but I tell you what, you just, you got to get better and better, just like you ask your players to get better and better every day. You have to get better. I, I benefited from the eight years at Maine and the only way at Michigan State we could go to a national championship in five years was a full collaboration of people. You know, my, of course, my coaching staff, but sports psychology, all of that was part of it. Michigan State had a lot of component parts uh, covered. And so you could really get everybody on the same page, not to mention the director of basketball operation, his skill set. I mean, there was just so many people covered but I will say this, people older than me. Mm. See, I think that's a critical element is getting maturity around you. you. You know, at 26 years old, I was the lead, you know, pretty much older than the people I was hiring. And that was fascinating at Maine. But when I got to Maine, I hired a great coach. I'm sorry, Michigan State. I hired a great coach in Al Brown, an older coach with experience on both the men's and women's side. And I also had a Dobo older than me. So I, I surrounded myself with people that had more life experience. And I did that at Michigan State. And I also did that at Duke. And I think that's a good thought uh, to have somebody with more life experience than you do. Maybe not more head coaching experience, but just more life experience overall. My friend, Taddy Steinford talks about this. He was uh, with the Red Sox. In, uh, in mental performance and 
And like the, the Moneyball idea kind of drove this, let's get rid of the old people out of the building because their thinking is old. They, they're about, you know, the, whatever those, the five things are from Moneyball, you know, um, <laughs> and, and you can kind of picture that, that scene from the movie where they're all sitting around, it's all the white-haired fellas and, and they're trying to explain analytics to them. He's like, how it actually works is you go and speak to those people because they, they have this sense for the game and they have this sense for the world and for life and you can learn so much from those people just by engaging them and activating them. And you're right, it could be the kit man. It could be the, uh, you know, just someone around the program it's so faulty to just think the thinking is old. So remove those people and get, you know, yeah. these, these numbers people in the door. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't. You need a great balance of diversity, diversity, including age, age diversity and, and all kinds. And I, I had a director of basketball operation, older man, older than me and an African-American male at the time. And the way in which he was able to communicate with the women on the team was just so extraordinary. Also a person of strong faith, you know, could really bring that to the table. And so I, there was, and he wasn't an active coach, uh, but, but his role, the way he could assist in one-on-one -on -one communication and keeping uh, the players in the right frame of mind was equally as important as an assistant coach. And so I, I again, we did it in five years. I mean, we took a program that was at the bottom of the big 10 and ended up in Indy you know, in the national championship after beating Tennessee, which was another amazing thing to think about. But that was because of the collaboration of a lot of different people, a hugely diverse staff, and obviously great players, you know, great committed players that love playing together. Yeah, it's quite the story. Yeah. <laughs> Let me refocus your attention back to the book for a second. I'd like to ask this question of anyone who's an author what has surprised you about what people have taken out of the secret warrior so i'll preface this for you so the, the example that i often use is i have a sneaking suspicion and i haven't asked him this and i will if i ever meet him that malcolm gladwell didn't think the ten thousand hours thing was the strongest chapter in uh, in Outliers. I'm sure he was in love with another chapter and thought this is the one that people are going to are gonna take away from this book because I've had that same experience. What, what have been the surprising takeaways that once you gave it to the audience mm -hmm. that they fell in love with that maybe you didn't expect? Well, I think people just saw the, the, the courage of sharing the story and the input has been incredible. Uh, there's, all, there's been both sides of the coin though. I mean, there's been some negativity as well. Uh, people, you know, want to make assumptions about things, you know, my, my coaching or, um, and not really understand or read the story or listen to it on Audible. I think what's really helping is the Audible because it's on Amazon at six hours and 33 minutes and I narrate it. So it really kind of brings the whole story full circle, but most of everything has been very positive. And what people have wanted to relate to is their stories. I mean, I talk about stories over stigmas. That's the whole idea is, can we share our stories? Can we tell them? It's a very important concept to be a storyteller. 
And I've had, I've seen people call me, players, people wanting leadership and the opportunity to direct the narrative a little bit, just in my own way. I mean, there's so much to do with brain health. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I am a coach. And I think about principles that matter and stories over stigmas, getting past our assumptions about mental health impairment is really important. And Naomi Osaka has made this worldwide. What the bravery that she showed, the courage that she showed to stand up to the USTA under circumstances that were very critically important to her mentally uh, and physically, that is, that lights a fire for everybody. And so that's really brought Secret Warrior and this dialogue um, forward more. And I just hope to do my part. It has put it on the world stage, hasn't it? And, and it was going to take someone of that stature, which is fantastic. So it's funny what people do latch on to, though, whether it's positively or negatively. For, for me, it's been the last chapter in my book is called Tactics Don't Really Matter. It's not actually a chapter about tactics whatsoever. It's about belonging and how belonging actually drives tactics. You can do a lot more, and but people latched onto the tactics don't really matter. So now I'm apparently seen as the guy who hates tactics in sport, which I, I did to myself. But, but to your point around stories over stigma, the, the other side of that is uh, a lot of my DMs now have been about uh, alcohol and alcohol consumption. And I talk about my alcohol consumption, working with a therapist, um, my background in Australia, the way that Australia views alcohol as part of sport, you know, almost as a necessity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and a lot of my messages now are from coaches talking about their own consumption and wanting to make adjustments there. And so you can see how you just start to open up these stories over yeah. the stigma and, yes. and people can really resonate with them. And they just need a, a champion to, to kind of come out and uh, mm. maybe take a couple of bricks out of the wall. Yes, and, and you can self-medicate a lot of things with alcohol. You know, it, it can be something that you hide things with. And one of the stories that is really the impetus for the whole book is being in a church at a funeral of my teammate's daughter who took her life. And she was misdiagnosed and she was at an alcohol rehab facility, which was not what she needed. She had a mental health impairment, possibly bipolar, but you know, hard to know exactly. And she was at exactly the wrong place for her to be. And she took her life while there. And so alcohol is very fascinating. Alcohol, you know, being an alcoholic, being addictive, that addictive personality, uh, that's its own beast. And it's very serious, but there's also underpinnings why people do it and what they're running from. And that's huge with mental health impairment. And that's why so many, if you can imagine someone manic and drinking and what they could potentially do at that time or depressed and drinking. Uh, For me personally, I'm very blessed that my family, there's no alcoholic tendency. There's no you know, so alcohol was never a part of my equation. I never went out. I went to bed. I got my sleep. I kept my routine. You know, I, I led a really simple life. And that helped me be healthy. 
Um, so, uh, you know, we talk about alcohol within this mental spectrum of mental health impairment and what's connected to what, and it can be complicated. Yeah, you know, specifically around coaching too, because there are no guardrails. There, there is, you know, part of the reason for my writing the book was similarly that it was a, a player taking his own life at the start of COVID and like my search for trying to look for something or someone that's talked about that kind of experience before as a head coach of young men and couldn't find very much mm. and kind of having to go through that journey. And so, again, there's, there aren't a lot of guardrails for coaches where that slide into whether it's alcoholism, whether it's masking some other way, can be quite fast because we're head coaches are kind of just left to their own devices a little bit. Yes, I think so more and more. And I think with administration, a lot of administration are just trying to cover everything. You know, they're always covering up type of thing and making sure things are a certain way. And I've had experience where administration just, you know, it's, it's all about the student athletes to the point of, you know, I mean, really pushing coaches aside, you know, like, and just really pushing them. And again, the student athlete welfare is critically important mm -hmm. and it must be cared for and it must be managed, but coaches must be also cared for and learn how to be good to themselves. And it, it's, I mean, where does a head coach turn, you know, when, when administration is doing X, Y, or Z, and you've seen incredible coaches exit coaching in ways that are, you know, that, that, that can be bothersome. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of issues out there as a head coach and as a leader. Um, leadership is still lonely. Last time I checked, it's making those decisions and that type of thing. Uh, but there's a lot of a lot going on, you know, and, and a lot, you talk, look at the NCAA, you know, billion dollar industry made up of committees to solve things. Like, how is that going to work? So now that's changing. And that's great that it's changing. But so much needs to change. Athletic administration to me needs to change. You know, they're not, it's so funny how the athletic administration kind of points to the NCAA well, athletic administration is part of it. They're on those committees. You know, they're, they're supposed to be leaders. You know, so it's, it's kind of a, it's just, there needs to be a lot of change and it can't be pointed at one place. I think all of athletic administration needs to be looked at. Uh, and, and right now they're good at pointing, you know, oh, it's the NCAA. Oh, you know, it's the coaches. Oh, you know, really good at, at playing that role. Um, so hopefully our real leaders will step up, whoever they are, I don't know, in athletic administration and, and start to make change and also help problem solve so the student athletes can get opportunity through the NIL and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and much the same conversation at the, the pro level as well is everyone's looking for what is the, the secret. And the funny thing is for the, the pro coaches who've read my book, the first response is generally my boss needs to read this, whether it's, whether that's the general manager, whether that's the owner, whether that's the, you know, so those same kind of problems exist within organizations um, that exist within the overall 
uh, kind of league structure like a like an NCAA. So, yeah, lots to work on, but it's exciting work. And it is, hopefully, yes. Hopefully, it, it is. I just I hope people are all holding themselves accountable. I mean, I you know that that's the issue that I get at. It's exciting work. It's new times, but again, it's I just feel like people aren't owning up on the administrative side that they're part of that NCAA that now needs to be broken up. And so I'm just, I'm just really hopeful that across the board, there's accountability and then in fact change, and then it can reach its balance for student athletes and coaches. I told you I, I didn't want to do anything stock standard, but I'm going to ask a stock standard question here to, to, to kind of finish up to the, women and men that look up to you and are looking for some advice, what would you say to them, particularly coaches, coaches mostly listen to, to this show. What would you say to them about your experience, what you've learned that can help them going forward in their careers? Older people, wisdom older than you. I think I would, you know, go back to that and remind people that that shows confidence and it shows wisdom to try to garner some more wisdom. So I would definitely want to offer that to, to new coaches. I also want to offer to them to take their time, do things right without the panic button, you know, of the contract and, you know, try to slow down a little bit and make sure the philosophy is really truly embedded that you're not just doing. I also would encourage them to understand the process and not be outcome driven, the no scoreboard mentality, the idea that if you're a fantastic team, you're good enough to not be looking at the scoreboard. You know, you're not looking at the outcome, you, you're, you're as a team, the energy is working, the execution is working, uh, the team is immediate, intense, playing smart, smart ball and inspired to play with each other and allowing the outcome to occur. And so I'm very much a process-driven coach, very much, always have been. And I think that it's easy to say the word, the process. You hear it all the time, the process, but it's not clearly defined. And I think, you know, key critical words like immediacy, intensity, intelligence, inspiration, words that can really allow a team to evaluate themselves besides the scoreboard. It's not a results business. It's a process business. It is. Yes. <laughs> we need to, we need to stop saying that. I, I know we want to keep hold of this results thing. Uh, and, and that's all what we're striving for, but there is enough evidence and structure and anecdotes and stories that it, it is a process business. Yeah. And you, you need to keep it even when things get challenging. For example, when we played Tennessee in the national semifinal, we didn't go out there and say, let's, we're going to beat Tennessee. Like that wasn't, we were methodical and had an incredible year of 30 plus wins. And there was a methodical routine that we had established in preparation. It didn't matter if it was Tennessee or Stanford or Notre Dame or whoever it was. And, you know, process has to be strong enough with principles that when you get to the world cup, you know, you know, you, uh, yes, it's obviously the World Cup. Got it. Okay, that's a blinding flash of the obvious, but you stick to the principles. You know, you don't just start, all, all of a sudden we'll start playing one-on-one -on -one and, you know, because we're on the big stage. You know, you've got to be able to have the, 
before you ever are on the big stage, when nobody's looking, that process must be in place. Okay, the question you've been waiting for, maybe, <laughs> maybe nervously, that I've primed you for. T tell us, is there, a, is there a Netflix show, an Amazon show, a Wikipedia hole? Is it billionaires flying into space? What have you, <laughs> been, <laughs> what have you been kind of obsessed with bizarrely that you never thought you'd be obsessed with in, in the last couple of years? I'll open the window up for you, Coach. Well, obsessed with being an author. Yeah. I mean, cool, I'm a, I, still, I still think I'm a better coach than author. I've had two books, right? And I, yeah, we had some bestseller stuff going on, which was great. But the humble nature, as I look at other books and read in the papers, you know, that your book is like, wow, it's just really, you know, it's, it's not as good as all these other books. Like you have to be very careful and not to be comparative. So, so to answer that, I mean, the space thing is real for me because my father, who has since passed on, it was in aviation. Okay, so, you know, that, that, that stuff is all very interesting. And of course, when it comes to um, Netflix, I mean, like I, I'm British and I'm, a, I'm half Brit. So Downton Abbey is, is life-changing, I think. Um, not to mention uh, Luther. Luther, British Luther, remember Luther? Um, so I kind of gave you a potpourri here, but I've never done Netflix before leaving coaching. So, so it just goes to show you how you create your own schedule and then you have these pockets of time because I never, Downton Abbey or any, I, I never had time nor made time for any of that. So it's a new world. And then finally I'll add the transitions. I never ever thought it would be as emotional and difficult leaving coaching as it's been. You could have told me, you could have said, but the, the emotions, the missing the players, the missing the relationships, um, the routine, you, you could never have told me, you know, how hard it would be. So, so all of that is answering your question nine different ways. <laughs> I am nowhere close to coaching at the level that, that you coach at, but I, I even, I struggled just with the title. Uh, and we we say, you know, all these things about it's not about the title, but that like I, I loved being a head coach, I loved the camaraderie of the team, the respect that that we all had, the the laughs, the you know the jovial things that that teams get up to, all the kind of jokes and the ribbing and the hard work, all of that. And yeah, you're right. It's it's there's these bizarre things that you just kind of clutch onto that are nerve wracking to to lose. Yes, and I, I, I love the conflict re resolution. Mm. I love the fact that one of my players came over about playing time and we had some spaghetti dinner and we worked through it together. Just one player, she happened to come over uh, for a minute and the spaghetti was there and we ate. I had another player who got very upset because we were talking about a schedule and I was asking her, you know, I was demanding of her. Again, conflict resolution. Now you can't have that when a player won't meet you halfway okay that but I've been fortunate to have really good players meet me halfway where we come together and then that's where you grow even more mm -hmm. suffering yes a little bit of conflict yes and obviously collaboration and all the fun factor so I miss every bit of it even the part that's uncomfortable you know that drive home 
where you're kind of unsettled, practice didn't go great, you know, so-and-so looked like they had a problem, you know, so-and-so is rolling their eyes at you, you know, you got a person, you know, all those elements that can drive you crazy are, are part of coaching, and I definitely can say I miss it. Yeah. Where can people that are listening to this find you, find the book, find everything that you've got going on? Yes, Coach P for Life is, you know, Coach P with the number four as the final four. Coach P for Life is on all the um, social media. So I can be reached through social media. I'm very responsive, you know, like with DMs or, or, or whatever. Um, I'm on Amazon, of course, Secret Warrior. The Audible is out. I do narrate the Audible. I am recommending the Audible. People are very busy and having a harder time sitting down and reading the book. Uh, I think I'd love everyone to have a book. I think it can be a gift book. It can help people. And I think people are getting more comfortable as a head coach telling the story to buy the book. In other words, because, because it, there's so much sports in it. You know, it's not all, it's a mental health journey filled with sports philosophy. And so I think it's a good combination book for a lot of people. Um, so anyway, uh, but the audible, the narration of it, I don't know if, have you narrated any of your books? Have you? I've been asked to, I haven't. Oh, you got to do it. You got it's It's the most humbling experience <laughs> because it took me 14 hours to get six hours, you know, of material and you get caught on words and then you, you start editing, you know, as you're reading and the experience, everyone should have to do it, but talk about discipline. You have yeah. to be disciplined and focused and allow yourself to be coached because the gentleman listening says, oh, no, let's do that again. I mean, one, one thing was 10 times. No, let's do that again. I was about to throw something at him. What do you mean do that again? You know, and so <laughs> and you get caught on words. Unfathomable was this word after a while I couldn't say. And I think that was like eight takes to get the word right. Um, so I think you should do it. I challenge you to, to read one of your books. Okay, done. <laughs> I've thoroughly enjoyed this, Coach. Thank you so much for coming on. And, and more importantly, thank you for sharing your story because like we talked about, you know, it's bringing these, these stories forward and helping to uh, address the stigmas. Uh, I think it's something that we all, as a community, particularly in coaching, need to do better. Mm -hmm. And so thanks for sharing yours and it's having a huge impact. So thank you from me and, and the rest of the community. Thank you, Cody. I appreciate it very much and wishing you the very best. And may I get to Australia someday. I'm hopeful. Hey, thanks for listening right to the end. Don't forget to jump on codyroyal.com to learn more about the show my books or get in touch with me and we'll see you next time.